Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist and cause marketer who's passionate about social impact and sustainability. As we open our show, I just want to give a big thanks to all of you. With your help, we've reached the top 3% of all podcasts as tracked by Listen Notes. We've been on the charts all over the globe, from the United States to Australia, Denmark to Singapore, Hong Kong, and even Ghana. Together, we are really doing something special. We're creating a community that stands for something. And it wouldn't be possible without you. If you haven't yet, please visit caremorebebetter.com to sign up for our newsletter. This simple step ensures your place in our community of activists and do-gooders around the world. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Today, our guest is David Johnson. He is a lawyer, writer, and professor. He teaches advanced negotiation at Stanford Law School and design thinking at the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. Over the last 20 years, he has also practiced law in Silicon Valley with clients including Apple, Google, Sankyo, Pharma, and the Computer History Museum. Last year, he spent a productive time on sabbatical in Singapore and is now back at Stanford, working on a book that applies design thinking to climate change activism. The working title is Climate Activism by Design. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, You know, the uh, novelist John Leroux was famous for receiving an introduction that was quite effusive like that one was, and he went to the podium. I feel like this, I should say the same thing. He went to the podium and said, I think the most appropriate thing I can do after that introduction is simply depart the field. But <laughs> I, will, <laughs> I will try and live up to the introduction you gave me. So uh, let's get at it. Yeah. Now, um, I think the frame of reference we should start from is where you're at presently. You're in Costa Rica, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're spending August in Costa Rica, my wife and I, um, partly because we've started doing some demo on our house, so we needed to evacuate anyway, uh, and this seemed like a good place as any, but also uh, it's a really neat surf town, Santa Teresa, on the west coast, Pacific coast of coast, southern Costa Rica, a place I haven't visited before, and if any of you out there have any inclination towards authentic surf towns, then Santa Teresa is one of your uh, places. So in a way, you know, I'm in Santa Cruz here and you're in (laughs) Costa Rica. Santa Teresa. So we're we're from one surf town to the other. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let's have a surf town talk. Yeah. Let's uh, actually get down to business here and talk a little bit about what you're doing. Um, In 2007, you completed a JSM in law, science, and technology, and your thesis explored design methods for software and their potential applications to systemic environmental issues, which is, I think, a big part of what we'll talk about today. So I'd like to know what led you on this path from law to design thinking and now climate activism. Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't want to get wound up in the subject matter of my thesis, but uh, one of the cool things and about being 
in the working world for a period of time and then getting to go back to schools, you have a new perspective on all things that you read in academia and you have a wide open uh, sort of blank slate to work with. And that's the way I approached it. It's the way my advisor allowed me to approach it. And so I just started reading. And I think if I remember correctly, the first book of real interest or uh, pivotal nature was James Gleick's book, Chaos. You may remember that from years ago, talking about chaos theory. And one thing leads to another and you let your mind flow. And I ended up reading a great deal about Grady Booch, sorry, uh, Dr. Booch, Grady Booch, who is really the godfather of object-oriented modeling. And I realized that he had come across a method of design for software, and in Silicon Valley, that seemed particularly apropos, a method of design for software that struck a chord with me as having applicability to uh, endeavors beyond software. His mantra was, uh, if you don't design it well, it won't work well. And that's something we've also heard from Steve Jobs and many others in the field. And his focus then was, we got to work on the design first. And he's, he even taught his students and his uh, mentees, postpone coding your software as long as possible so that your design is as robust as possible and you will end up having to write uh, less code or rewrite really less code and your code will be cleaner, more efficient. And all of that spoke to my lawyer brain and my policymaking brain as, wow, if we could only try to apply those ideas to policymaking, for example, the first thing that came to mind was uh, the healthcare system, healthcare insurance system in the United States, which is extremely broken and extremely poorly designed. I mean, whoever came up with the idea that we should get our healthcare insurance be, be through our employer and only through our employer really got us started in the wrong direction, as it turns out. But my area of, of academic interest was unequivocally environmental law, specifically international environmental law, which includes, but isn't limited to, it includes climate change, uh, et cetera. So I started thinking about those ideas in that context back in, I would say, 19, I say 19 already, huh? 1995, 96. So let's talk for a moment about design thinking and layman's mm -hmm. terms. Can you describe what it is and what it isn't and how, sure. use, how it's useful in creating change? Yeah. Uh, the dean of the uh, straight school of design, which has an office in Paris and also in Singapore, puts it as well as anybody I've seen. And that is simply a design is not design thinking and design thinking is not design. That is to say, the work of a designer uses design thinking as one of many tools of creativity or problem solving, but doing design thinking is not necessarily design. It's applicable to uh, true design. Uh, let me put it a different way. Design thinking is a method. It's a mindset. We call it, sometimes call it the designer's mindset. It is a broad set of tools, and those, that set of tools is really ever-expanding as the work goes on uh, and the, the power of design thinking spreads globally. Uh, it's a set of tools that allows us to think about problems uh, in a different way, and I would argue in a better way. Design thinking 
uh, got its beginning at Stanford in the engineering school, and the work was almost exclusively on designing products. In fact, David Kelly, who is the founder of the D School and a professor of engineering at the D School, uh, also became the founder, co-founder of IDEO, which is really one of the uh, world's strongest design firms. They had some involvement in, let's say, the Apple mouse way back in the day, et cetera, et cetera. And so product design was really where the action was for the first five, 10 years of the design thinking movement at Stanford at the D School. But I feel lucky enough to have jumped into that pool about five years ago when the thinking was shifting towards applying design thinking in these tools over to uh, what I call non-physical or intangible uh, problems. Uh, for me, social systems, uh, specifically for me, the systems of international treaties or transnational treaties or sometimes domestic law that seeks to address uh, environmental issues uh, and a subset of environmental, environmental issues being climate issues. Uh, so that's where my focus was academically. And as I continue to teach, uh, I started working in that direction, hence the book, which is also going to be basically for me a primer for a course on climate activism and design. Well, I'm, I'm encouraged that that curriculum will soon be taught at Stanford as well. Mm. Now, um, one of the things that you and I spoke of a little earlier when we connected was um, really how there are many examples in history where a single person was able to create change or be the catalyst for great change. Uh, from Rosa Parks for racial equality to Julia Butterfly Hill for old growth mm. trees mm. to Greta Thunberg for climate mm. activism, just to really name a few. Yeah. So, um, in fact, it was Margaret Mead who said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, yeah. committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. With a background in yeah. anthropology, I always go to that quote. I think it's one of my yeah. favorites of all time. So um, I'd like to know if you agree first with Margaret Mead, are these outliers or is there more to the story? And how can we as people really move to be a catalyst for, for good change? Yeah, that's a great quote, a great question. And, uh, you know, West Wing fans will remember that that line was used uh, very forthrightly in uh, that television show. Uh, and, I, don't, I, I like the line a lot, the, the underpinning, the assumption one has to make, I think about a couple of assumptions one has to make about the correctness of that statement is number one, does that small group of people have the power that is necessary to affect the change? And the answer to that question is assumption number two, what is the change they're trying to effect and what is the obstacle or what are the obstacles to effecting that change. So uh, I love the statement, but it begs the question of uh, how much authority, power does, does that group of people have and what is the obstacle? And so I'm gonna apply it to climate change and say that, and, and I may use this quote in the book, uh, that the, the issue with climate change is one where 
a small group of people, even if they're heads of state, have proven not to have the power to effect meaningful change. Some change, but not meaningful change. And why? Because the scope of the problem is so massive. So the second underlying assumption is what are the obstacles that are preventing that small group, even of, of national leaders, from succeeding? And the obstacles are uh, capitalist profit-driven corporations coupled with governments uh, that they control either directly or indirectly in serving the capitalist interest as opposed to the interests of the earth. And so we now see, uh, I think just in the last few days, for example, uh, that uh, Henry Kissinger and Michael Bloomberg and one other individual whose name I've forgotten are creating a joint venture. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying these words, are creating a joint venture, it is reported, to go mine for rare metals in Greenland because the rare metals in Greenland are necessary for the scaling up of batteries to power electric vehicles of all kinds. Now, I don't even know enough to know where I sit on the side of the argument pro and con, but we have a situation where somehow or another, the permafrost is gonna to have to be melted in order to get the mining equipment down to get these metals. So we're going to do some damage to Greenland and we're going to release some more frozen methane gas and melt some ice in order to get precious metals necessary to build batteries so that we can do what? So we can try and protect Greenland and the ice and the ocean, et cetera, et cetera. This is, I'm using this as an anecdotal exemplar only. If somebody could do the spreadsheet and prove to me that in the long run, this is better than leaving it in the ground, uh, so be it. But unfortunately, the alternative everybody seems to assume is just pulling more oil out of the ground, and that does not need to be the alternative. Uh, so I, I'd like to see a reframing of the question, and, and I query whether this is a smart play uh, to solve the problem of uh, scaling up batteries. The real issue for me is how do you power the batteries? You know, the tailpipes to, to smokestacks problems still exist. The electricity has to be created to drive electrical vehicles. And unless you're doing that in a clean way, then you're just moving the carbon emissions from many pipes to larger pipes. And that, that moves us nowhere. Well, I'm disappointed to hear that we're talking about melting permafrost in Greenland. I mean, this seems yeah. completely nonsensical, right? Like, okay, so um, there are some stories where governments have made some interesting choices. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the exact island off the coast of Hawaii, but it, it's one of the Hawaiian islands. And there was a lot of experiments run there. Um, I, I think that the government had chosen to introduce uh, species and they needed to eradicate it. So then they put bunnies on the island and the bunnies they figured would die once uh they ran out of their water source. And so it would just they would naturally go away. But then the bunnies started to eat the eggs of the seabirds, because they were able to capture water from the eggs. And so then they wanted to introduce something else, right to 
to solve the bunny problem because now they're yeah. going to create an endangered species. It's the point is yeah. it's just kicking the problem down the road in one way yeah. or another. And the earth's precious resources are still getting captured and being taken for granted as opposed to looking at the earth as a stakeholder in the problem. So I think yeah. our thinking needs to shift and perhaps that's design yeah. thinking. And I think you're going to work to tackle that with your book too. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thanks. The law of unintended consequences. I don't know the, it may have been Lihui, the Island in Hawaii. I'm not sure, but that has happened in a lot of places. Australia had the same problem. Um, I think Tasmania may have had the same problem, but, um, yeah, the law of unintended consequences is real. And when when we start reading articles about geoengineering to put uh, reflectors in space space orbit uh, in orbit around the Earth in order to try and push some of the some modicum of heat back out into space, uh, or growing algae in the ocean intentionally in order to capture carbon. Uh, the law of unintended consequences comes screaming out of the tunnel at you with the headlights flashing. And, you know, sometimes you can't get off the tracks. It's uh, pardon the metaphor, but it's a really dangerous thing to experiment uh, in your in the real environment instead of a test environment. Especially at the scale we're talking about. Yeah. That you would need to in order to create real change. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So um, I was in a clubhouse room earlier today that was specifically talking about the new IPCC report, um, yeah. which basically has said that there is a direct correlation, unanimously agreed, between our actions and climate change. Um, I haven't read the report. It just came out. Uh, but that's the gist of what the climate activists were talking about when I was in the room. Yeah. And, um, you know, my thinking on this uh, is really related to the fact that we can each as individuals push for, you know, some modicum of change from our perspectives, but it's the bad actors that we need to be more concerned with. And the bad actors are <laughs> essentially working in international spaces and often coming from a um, capitalistic perspective in, in places that we have called the developing world. Um, you know, we're talking about the Philippines, um, Eastern Asia, um, you know, South Asia too, where a lot of manufacturing occurs and where we in America don't necessarily see directly the ravages on the environment because we aren't necessarily watching the news, looking at what's happening in those spaces. And so we just take for granted that the shirt that we bought is equitable or socially responsible when it might be fast fashion created with a lot of carbon emissions. Um, mm -hmm. So I just wonder, when I think of this all through, um, if we know that a small group of well-intentioned people are not mm -hmm. going to be able to, you know, dramatically impact the climate, how do you think that we can make a difference? We're going to network a lot of small groups uh, of aligned interests. So the blessing and the curse of climate change is that it's a global problem. But for my eye, the blessing of that is that you can connect people. You, we can get people connected around the world 
uh, on issues. For example, here in Santa Teresa, just yesterday, I was in a shop uh, talking with one of the locals about a project they have here for monkey bridges, because I'd never heard of any issue around monkey bridges. And it turns out that the monkeys in the jungle up mountain away from the ocean need to tra traverse down to the ocean front because that's where certain foods they eat, including the almond trees, um, grow mostly. And to do that, they have to cross the road. Like most towns on the beach, it has a main road that goes for miles and miles and miles. And what's happening is that monkeys aren't going to the ground to try and cross because they're, that's just not an option. It's too full of humans and cars. So what they're trying to do is cross on the electrical wires that span the road to get to their feeding grounds. And too many of them are dying from the elect from electric shock or falling off, et cetera. So they, there's a movement to build bridges. Now that strikes my mind because I know that there's bridge building, bridge movement, uh, sorry, there's a movement in the US, in the, particularly in the Northwest US for building life uh, uh, wildlife bridges for wolves, for moose, for elk, et cetera, et cetera, across or under highways uh, across, all across the U.S. and I think even in Canada. And so I can envision, I uh, may even use the example where a small group of highly committed people in Montana are working on this issue and they, using social media and the internet, can get connected to a small group in Costa Rica working on a similar issue. And there's three, five, 10, 20, 50 small groups around the world working on this small environmental issue. And they can share their information. They can coalesce uh, authority, agency. They can increase the power of their voice. They can hopefully improve solutions, uh, shared information, shared activism. And that is the beginning of what I would call a small node of a larger network. And if you multiply that out times, let's say, a thousand environmental climate-oriented issues uh, and get people talking to one another around the world, then we have not just one Margaret Mead group, we have a thousand. And then those thousand can connect with others who are interested in taking their activism up another level. Uh, to approach co corporations and governments that are the obstacles to achieving the appropriate change. So now we're going up a level in the network. And the idea is to create a blueprint. I would call it, I call it personally, a green print. I use the phrase green print two ways. Personal green print for each individual who wants to become an activist in the environmental space, including but not limited to climate. To I will walk them through a model where, and using some design thinking tools, explore their thinking and, and knowledge and their interests to develop a, a personal statement, personal map of how they want to approach being an activist and call that their personal green print. And when they come together in groups, they can also create a group green print, let's say for wildlife bridges, they can develop a, they can collaborate and develop an agreed upon green print for that a small but very important piece of the problem. And so likewise, we get all of these green prints out there that can be shared, modified, amended, uh, used, open source, crowdsourced, and get this all to scale. And the idea is simply to 
for me to put out some tools and ideas there for people and let the system, hopefully, let the system grow organically, find its path organically, be more or less leaderless, and emerge into a large number of people, which is really a collection of small groups of people who can assemble and, and, and aggregate a uh, collaborative voice. Their voice can become stronger, in fact, than even the number of individuals. Uh, they can have a voice uh, I envision of not just you know, one person, one, one voice out of let's say 200,000 or uh, a million, but they can also have the voice of others who are not necessarily in their groups. They can have the voice for the wildlife that can't speak for itself. They can present the voice of children who aren't involved yet. They can, they can present the voice of anywhere from one to seven generations of yet unborn human beings who we know are coming and are going to have to inhabit this planet. And that planet has to be sustainable for humanity to survive. And so uh, I'm, I'm reminded of in my reading, seeing someone, and I forgot who it was, say, unlike the Margaret Mead quote, we need a billion climate activists. And I would agree, we need a, a billion climate activists, but we're not gonna have a billion climate activists in the next six months, 12 months, two years, four years. We've had 30 years, 40 years to get a billion climate activists. But what we can do is have a smaller group of activists, well-designed, organized, highly aligned, maybe loosely coupled, working in sync that can convey the voice of a billion human beings to bring pressure to bear on governments that are recalcitrant, to bring pressure to bear on corporations who are damaging the environment, who are greenwashing, uh, as Greta came out a couple of days ago to, to discuss greenwashing, uh, some of their supposed uh, environmental uh, objectives. And so it's, it's, a, it's a very optimistic book I'm going to write, and it's a very optimistic uh, objective that I'm hoping can be achieved. Uh, it may not be achieved in my lifetime. It's a five to 10 year piece of work, but it has to happen. I do not see another path to solving climate change in time to avoid serious permanent damage that affects humanity for a long, long time. If we do not assemble a global voice of hundreds of thousands, millions, and tens of millions of people who can literally force governments based on the power that they extract from the people and corporations based on the dollar vote that consumers give them to force them to do what has to happen. Well, you bring up a couple of things that I want to touch on. Um, one of those is consumers voting with their dollars. It's become a very popular idea. And often consumers struggle with the enormity of the purchasing choices they make in their day to day life and how to ensure that they are purchasing authentically uh, responsible products that aren't simply greenwashed. 
So I wonder what you would have to say about that, um, pushing from the bottom as consumers, as one layer of what we can do to support climate activism as well. Uh, Two things come to mind. The the direct answer to that question, I think, is uh, the evolution of uh, groups who can provide the information necessary. I walk into a store and I can't tell from the product that I'm looking at whether it's one that I'm going to feel good buying or not. But enough pressure on the corporations who are uh, making uh, fair trade, uh, non-greenwashed products. I don't even know what the, the right word to attach to it is. If I can't get the information from a reliable group on the internet about which brands are doing, doing the right thing, then I would ask the brand. I would, I would implore the brand to make sure that they're presenting it um, to the buyer. And the ones then that aren't, uh, I'm going to shy away from just by negative inference. Now, that's going to take some time to evolve, but I'm confident that the marketplace will evolve that. Uh, but each of us is going to have to do some measure of work. But this is one area where I think a group of, a uh, small group of highly motivated people could really make a difference by giving the average consumer the information they need to make good purchase choices and provide the alternatives that are better than the uh, the bad choices. The other thing that comes to mind is regeneration. Um, there's a book out on, uh, I've forgotten the title. Uh, my wife is reading it right now on the history of Patagonia, specifically Yvon Chouinard's work to bring Patagonia to the surface. He is and has been for some time uh, uh, delivering the mantra of regeneration, reuse, uh, reuse your stuff. Uh, he obviously doesn't work with foodstuffs as much, but with clothing and shoes and all other manner of products, learning how and getting the help in uh, regenerating the stuff that we have rather than buying new stuff and putting old stuff in the landfill or even in recycling. Uh, and plastics is a good place to start with this model can really make a difference. And this is something that, again, if we can get the information out to the average consumer and they are like-minded, as I think most people are going to become like-minded on this issue, then we can have a real impact on producers of products that are using uh, virgin oil uh, to make single-use plastics. Those should be out of existence within five years if we have uh, any say about it. Uh, and I can't not stop here to uh, let your audience know that Paul Hawken, who is one of the great environmentalists still alive and working in our times, is coming out with a new book, I think in September, called Regeneration. And he talks about regeneration, not of just reuse of products and regeneration of forests, for example, but he is exploring new space uh, a regeneration of culture, law, and norms, which is a place near and dear to my heart. So I'm very excited to see that book come out. Uh, and I would recommend that one to anybody who is following Paul Hawken. Uh, I think this is going to be his best work yet. Well, well, I look forward to that book myself. Um, regeneration, I think, is a concept that most people already grasp a little bit. 
Um, but, you know, it's even as simple for me. I, I try to even ensure that I save all my running shoes and I drop mm-hmm. them off at my local running store when I buy a new pair, um, both of my shoes and my children's, because they recycle them into running tracks at high schools and colleges around the states, which I think is a great reuse for a running shoe, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. but you know, again, this becomes an arduous task for consumers to try and see how they can regenerate each core thing that they use in a daily basis. I mean, I just think it comes down to making wiser purchasing choices. Personally, when I buy toys for my kids, I try to always buy them used or off of my local share groups on Facebook and things like that. Just because what a toy is only in use for so long before the child outgrows right. it. Same with clothing until they have holes in them, which I then patch. And (laughs) perhaps my (laughs) kids look a little tattered, but, you know, a four-year-old can put a hole in a pair of jeans in about a week. So, you know, these are things that you just have to grow and do. Yeah. They grow out of them pretty quick, too. Yeah. And I think, I think, uh, I really think, and in part, as as the, the news spreads about the IPCC, report and the red flag warning that it contains that people's consciousnesses are going to be raised yet another notch. And that's good. More people will come up to the notch below that and we'll move the global uh, population one step closer to a willingness to be conscious about making those kinds of decisions, to being conscious about learning more uh, about what's a good choice as opposed to a bad choice for purchases and becoming consciously aware of the resources that are emerging daily on the internet that give them information about how to make those decisions, how to regenerate products, places they can do. I, I, I think that what you're doing with your kids' clothes, for example, is something that a whole lot of moms out there just need a nudge to break out of the habit of going on to Amazon and ordering up a new pair of jeans for their kid because it'll be on the do- on the doorstep tomorrow or the day after, and yeah, that's convenient. But that is going at taking us in the wrong direction and figuring out a way to make it relatively easy and also create a sense of self worth for the individual who's making the pro climate uh, step. Uh, I think is where the, for me, almost everything in life is about motivation. And if we can change people's motivation from speed and efficiency to goodness, then uh, I think we will have made a huge step in the right direction. Yeah, I, I agree with you. One of the things I'm encouraged by is the fact that social benefit entrepreneurship is in common curriculum now in MBA schools around uh, the world. I had the opportunity to take a social benefit entrepreneurship course um, while I was getting my MBA at Santa Clara University. And that professor, Robert Eberhardt, has now moved on to your school, to Stanford. So, um, you know, it's nice to see that this is coming into curriculum for business people, that they're starting to think more about ethical choices, and ultimately that there will be this new wave of business people that are activated around these sorts of things and building companies that are more responsible at their core, as opposed to having it be just some lip service that they pay to ensure consumers are attracted to them. So um, I wonder if you're, and uh, from your perspective, 
if you think that this current state of social benefit entrepreneurship is actually becoming mainstream, or does it just seem that way? In my sphere, uh, I see a few of these companies, but not enough that I could say it's moving mainstream. I think one of the issues, again, is pure capitalism. Uh, to her credit, the founder, uh, and I'm going to blank on her name now that I've said it, the founder of Coursera began her company as a B Corp and uh, continues it, I believe, in that uh, category and has resisted uh, an IPO because she has a different uh, objective for Coursera. And I applaud her for that. I think that's that's uh, admirable. And she's in a position where she can do it um, and doesn't need to, doesn't have the need to try to become a unicorn. I, I think the company's probably technically a unicorn uh, and cash out and become another, you know, billionaire valley gnome and, and you know, go hide in a, in a private jet. Uh, and uh, so that's an example of a successful, really successful B Corp that's out there doing really good uh, work for humanity. And uh, I admire that intensely. Uh, I don't see a lot of those yet. Uh, I'm sure they're out there just because I don't see them doesn't mean they're not out there. I think this is the sort of thing that takes time to emerge. And I suspect that this professor of yours is similarly motivated to try and get some of his B-school students at whichever school uh, interested in uh, uh, socially benefited uh, undertakings, whether they are founders in a corporation or they work for another uh, corporation or they finance such corporations in a venture capital firm. So I'm hopeful. I am hopeful. I'm glad the category was created and I'm glad that it's being taught. Uh, but it may be a while. Well, between now and when your book is actually published, <laughs> um, I wonder if you have just some advice that you'd like to give the budding activist in our community, or mm -hmm. even the established activist, how that they could be more effective in their pursuits. Uh, for both of them, uh, I'll start with the answer that is, I think, the same for both, which is reach out and collaborate more. My guess is that activists who are already out there doing activist work are already in collaboration. And my, urge, my, my view would be just keep doing that and do more of it and try and expand your network and find people who are like-minded, not just on the issue, but on the morality and the uh, intensity and the passion and the objective, uh, they are out there. Uh, you'll network, you know, we all network and we find there are some people who are really into what we're into. And then we network and there are some who kind of are, kind of aren't. Maybe they can't uh, allocate the time, et cetera. Uh, and that's okay. But find, find the ones that are on your level of passion and try and build your network. Uh, the people who are already out there 
in the activist world, uh, I am confident are doing that. I would just say do more of that. For the budding activists, uh, it's a little bit, in my view, uh, it's a little bit like a startup company. Find a co-founder. Now, technically, you may not be creating a company and you're not going to do a for-profit company, but find somebody to collaborate with. One thing we've learned uh, profoundly at the D School is that having a co-operator, a collaborator, a co-founder uh, has this, I, I don't like the phrase, synergistic effect, and, and the two people can do so much more together than they could try to do apart. In fact, we have a rule at the D School that all classes are co-taught for the same philosophy, that two people teaching the course are going to deliver a better course uh, because it's almost always part design thinking and part subject matter. And uh, I really like that idea a lot. So for the budding activists, and there will be a whole chapter uh, at least on this in the book, find someone who can be akin to a co-founder and like again has the same passion and energy and interest that you do in a particular subject area and like startups sometimes that first person or second person isn't quite the right fit and you can continue to I, I don't like the phrase too much sift through your network until you find somebody you click with and you can really start uh, working on a project and for the budding activists I would add start small Start small, do a project that you can really accomplish without too much difficulty. It could be a local, it could be a, a local in your town. It could be a project that's just your neighborhood. It's just the street. It's just your block. But something that gets some motivation and some energy going in yourself and your, and your colleague and you succeed. This is one of the things they teach in Pedagogy 101 to those of us who teach Yes, teachers get taught, uh, is you're looking for the uh, confidence and competence feedback loop. So people move forward when they have confidence. And if you take a small step forward and you do something well and you succeed, you have developed an uh, incremental competence in that area but you've also gained confidence that comes from the success. And then you do it again and you do it again. And so long as those feedback loops are relatively small and you don't have catastrophic failures that de degrade your confidence, then you would be really surprised. And students from the beginning to the end of a semester are oftentimes amazed at where they end up at the end of a semester than where they began simply because they stepped through a series of very small confidence competence loops and they get to a place where you know for example they'll say i would never have believed that i could stand in front of my classmates and deliver a mini ted talk for 10 minutes on something i'm passionate about and do it without being nervous anxious upset anything but joyous and at the beginning of the class, they wouldn't stand up and introduce themselves. It's a process and budding activists want to work their way through that process from wherever they feel like they're starting, you know, uh, work through that process to a point where they have confidence as an activist. And then they do that, which I referred to earlier for existing activists. 
And by the way, it's a lot of fun and there's an enormous amount, an enormous amount of meaning in your personal life for doing these sorts of things. Well, I agree with you top to bottom. There is data behind the fact that co-founded businesses are trending towards more successes than those that are um, started by one individual. And I think part of that is you have you have a sounding board. You also have someone who's equally invested in the success of the project. And so just by doing that, by working closely with someone to achieve an objective, your chances of success improve, right? And right. in addition to that, just ultimately taking one step one day at a time and working for incremental improvements will make you expert at something eventually. <laughs> Just right. you have to take step by step. It doesn't happen overnight. And so um, I think that's good advice for anybody in any field. One of my favorite quotes, and it's usually attributed to Bill Gates, and I'm not sure if he was the originator, but he has popularized the saying. And uh, I took it to heart, which is, People vastly overestimate what they can accomplish in a year, and they vastly underestimate what they can accomplish in a decade. And I have found that to be true. Um, I was on a call just a few minutes ago with our faculty uh, teaching group at Stanford, and uh, I looked. we all looked back at how long we've been teaching, and I've now been teaching 13 years at the law school, and I realized that that decade of work, although it was all incremental, has uh, moved me to a place that I never in a million years would have imagined that I could be. Uh, and it wasn't even really planned. I just got on the track and kept putting one foot in front of the other. And then all of a sudden, you're in a place where you never thought you could be. And everyone can do this in some area. Everyone. Every single person listening today can do this in some area if you're willing to take the time to do it. Well, I think that's a beautiful note upon which to um, <laughs> ask you my final question. Um, uh oh, okay. So, is there a question that you wish I'd asked that I haven't? Not one that comes immediately to mind. Uh, although one that comes secondarily to mind quickly is, can you tell, kind of in the context of the conversation we just had, can you tell me how you see care more, be better, applying to what people can do for climate change issues? Well, I personally look at this as a one foot in front of the other effort where I mm. am pushing forward conversations that can act as a catalyst for change. Idealistically, I hope that it can be something that motivates people to take that first step themselves. Um, and so I, I look at the show, the entire ethos of the show is really being an invitation to get people to care a little bit more about a particular issue, whether it be sustainability or a social impact issue, and just take part of it on themselves so that they can be a part of the change, so that they can, you know, ultimately become that budding activist if they aren't already there 
and hopefully learn a thing or two about how they can um, improve their impact in their daily lives and ultimately um, move towards a more sustainable future. It's a journey. And I think of it as a marathon and not a simple race, right? It's uh, mm-hmm. it's going mm-hmm. to take uh, a lot of effort on my part to keep the podcast rolling. It does <laughs> on yeah. a weekly basis. Um, yeah. At the same time, it gives me plenty of inspiration. And I'm hoping to do that for um, a small group of motivated people and hopefully create these cells that you're talking about, um, you know, produce a network effect and ultimately create an engaged audience who um, may even one day collaborate together um, in the sort of ways that you're talking about in this particular show. I mean, that would be my idealistic vision of where we end up. Yeah. Yeah. I'm taken back uh, to the first big march that I ever participated in. And I can, for anybody who has never just decided, you know what, I'm going to put my boots on today. I'm going to go down. There's a march at the park or there's a protest over here or there on any issue that you feel strongly about. When you go out to one of these public protests or marches and just get into the milieu, get into the space, you're going to feel something different amongst a group of people who feel passionately about a single issue. And it's going to envelop you. And it becomes much easier to have a conversation, even if you're terribly shy socially, you're going to you're going to find it much easier to strike up a conversation with someone, you have a ready made topic to talk about. And you will find I believe, because I did uh, an enormous amount of sort of emotional and spiritual lift from just spending a few hours in that event. And it's a reframing of my attitude about activists, my attitude about being active politically or socially, and uh, also uh, it opens one's eyes, it did mine, opens one's eyes to a larger uh, aspect of humanity. People are good. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you, David, for all that you're doing to protect and preserve our home planet. Thank you. I appreciate that. I hope I'm successful in one my small way. Well, and when that book is ready, I want you to come back and I'll okay. um, we can talk about it. Okay. I just so appreciate what you're doing. I love learning more about design thinking. So I always appreciate new perspectives on that as well. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciated the time. Now, listeners, I'd like to invite you to act. It doesn't have to be huge. It could be as simple as sharing this podcast with people in your community and picking up a copy of David's future book. And I encourage you to check out caremorebebetter.com. You can visit our action page for ideas of businesses you can support and actions you can take to ultimately have more impact in your life. Thank you, listeners, now and always, for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and be better. 
Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.